Well, this morning's topic uh, is on forgiveness. And Brian reminded me uh, lately that uh, I actually spoke on forgiveness seven years ago. So anybody going back into the, uh, into the archives, rest assured this is a new message. So, um, but that being, case, the, it being the case, it is a, a continuation of our study in Matthew chapter 18. And, uh, and in the prior passage that we took last week, you might recall that there was a section of that passage that was concerning um, someone being sinning against you and the process of approaching the person in love, uh, seeking repentance and reconciliation with the relationship. And it went on to a process. It talked about, well, you go see the person individually, then to the extent they don't listen, you go to people. And then if that doesn't happen, you go and approach the church. And so that's in the passages just before it. And so you can imagine, and the way I think about it is, uh, if Peter was standing there listening to this, he's thinking about relationships and he's thinking about reconciliation. And naturally, it would come about, I think, into the next section a little bit. And so if you turn to your Bibles for Matthew chapter 18, I'm not going to put Matthew 18 up on the board or up on my uh, overheads, but I will put other verses that I'm referencing so you don't have to skip around in your Bible. I'm going to be reading from mostly from the New Living Translation, so it might not be quite the same as, as your passage, but uh, I trust the, uh, it will be of, of, of value and benefit. So in Matthew chapter 28, and we'll start at verse 21. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Brian. Matthew 18, verse 21. Sorry, everybody was worried about me skipping the chapters, but uh, in verse 21. So Matthew 18, for clarity, and verse 21. So then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 77 times. Now I'll stop there. So as I mentioned, you can picture Peter coming out of the conversation of the prior amount of offenses and the process of that. And he would have had the background, the Jewish background that would have said, well, you've probably, you know, some of the teachings where you'll forgive three times, but not four. So he would have had maybe some of that background. So when he said seven times, he may have thought he was being gracious and that he was kind of presenting something that was actually more uh, generous than, than what would otherwise be of that thought, the thought of that day. But Jesus responds 77, and I won't get into the, some people may be think it's seven times seven or, 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 or seven times 70. But anyways, let's take it for 77 times. Now you could take 77 times to mean, well, we should be keeping track because how do I know when I hit 77? So we should be keeping track of wrongs. And the second thing is, there's an upper limit, so it's important to keep track so that we, when we reach the upper limit, we know we're done. Well, in principle, that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was establishing a principle that our forgiveness is unlimited. It's unlimited, and it's an currency, the way I think of it, and you might know I'm a bit of an account, so I think currency and money, so this parable has been very effective for me. But it's a currency. Forgiveness is a currency, and I think Jesus provides that limit not as an expression of limitation, but as an expression of abundance. Um, and so I think, you know, when Jesus teaches about forgiveness, he talks about it being graciously and generously spent. And why do I say that and why do I point that out? Well, I'm thinking because 
we have a very generous God, don't we? We have a very generous God, and this is in line with his character, that he doesn't keep track, and he wants us to be generous with the things we've given him. You know, I was thinking of a couple of verses on, uh, about being generous, and I throw a few of them up there. And in Ephesians 1, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is, has blessed us in Christ with some, a few, no, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. And in Ephesians 1, 7 to 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And then in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, he didn't spare him, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We have a very generous God, don't we? So maybe at this point, let's just look to him for the guidance of the rest of the rest of our discussion today. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your example of how generous you are. We don't have to look too far, Father, and see that you gave us your Son, the Lord Jesus, that you gave us a love, a grace, and you show us mercy every day. We thank you for these spiritual blessings. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And I can go on in thinking of how generous you are. And Father, you looked down and you saw a hopeless people and you sent your son and you didn't spare him. How generous that is. And Father, we're today we're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about something that you ask us to do. You've talked to, we're talking about something that is somewhat challenging for some and maybe for all of us. Father, I just ask you that your grace would pour out today in a, in a generous manner, that you would open hearts and you would open minds. Father, that if, if there's anything here that we need to address personally or as a group, that we would do that. Father, that you would just richly show us uh, your truth from your word. And I ask you for your help to do that. And I just pray for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we continue on, I hope to look at the three following things. What does the world think of forgiveness? So today, what does the world think of forgiveness? I just want to look at that briefly so that we can put that in context. What does Jesus think about forgiveness? How should we be thinking about it? And I want to talk about to beware of unforgiveness. To beware of unforgiveness. So what does the world think about forgiveness? Well, let's, I'm going to just start with a precursor. Jesus is all for forgiveness. He believes in it, he extends it, and he is generous with it. And we'll go into that. So if Jesus is for it, it's probably reasonable, reasonable to expect that his position is in conflict with the world. It goes back to the upside downness that Gideon spoke about last, last week, that sometimes the things in the kingdom of heaven are very different than things on earth. The world has somewhat abandoned forgiveness in search of their own fulfillment. So what's the most visible evidence of the abandonment of forgiveness? Well, some of you may have heard the term of cancel culture. And it's a term that's used out there in different areas. This is when an offender, whether what he has purported to have done is either great or small, suffers the extremes of unforgiveness. 
And they suffer that for what they call the pursuit of justice. It has some origin in social media, for example, where uh, you'll see that the media will otherwise uh, deal with this particular issue. But basically, cancel culture is the offender is effectively ostracized, boycotted, or shunned. Generally, when a person is canceled, there are no longer, they are no longer supported publicly. So who is here has heard of cancel culture as it relies in society today? So just make sure I have my audience, okay? So what's interesting, and I, I'm gonna throw this quote up here. I read a book by Tim Keller, and Tim Keller, we did the Meaning of Marriage uh, seminars with Tim, and he's, uh, he's a very intelligent and very thoughtful and godly man, and he applies different things as he thinks through these things. And he has a book that's called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? And he provides a quote and I think I will uh, go to this quote, and hopefully you can read it. And I'll read the quote, but there's some focuses in it. It says, this re re new reverse honor culture, also called cancel culture, ends up valuing not strength, but fragility, and creates a society of constant good versus evil conflict over the smallest issues as people compete for status as victims or as defender of victims. It atrophies, or kind of lays to waste, our ability to lovingly overlook slights. In 1 Peter 4 and 8, love covers a multitude of sins, so it, 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 it wastes that. But most of all, in the society today, it sweeps away the very concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. But most of all, it sweeps away the very concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is seen now as radically unjust and impractical as short-circuiting the ability of a victim to gain honor and virtue as others rise to defend them. And so this culture is littered with enormous numbers of broken and now irreparable relationships. So this kind of societal thinking has resulted in many accusations coming to the surface. And I don't think I need to tell anybody if they read a newspaper, if they watch their news feed across their computer, or, or different uh, media outlets where they'll see people that are claiming the status of a victim. Today, we see the most, I guess, uh, fortunate people, if I can call them that. We see movie stars, from movie stars all the way to royal princes presenting even the smallest wrongs in their memoirs, in their documentaries, in their interviews, and in their books to expose their victim status. Now, to be clear, I'm not belittling a real abuse or criminal action that have occurred. Forgiveness doesn't compromise addressing criminal actions by getting police involved or addressing abuse by getting to a safe place. That's not what I'm talking about. But when the pendulum swings to a point where forgiveness has no place in society, everything becomes an offense. For, and we consume ourselves kind of in victimhood is what's really what's been happening. And in some instances, we obtain honor through it. And so what I'm suggesting is the pendulum has swung too far as it relates to the worldview. As Christians, I think it's important to understand the current thinking that's around us. And I think it's, understand, it's important to understand it for three reasons, and there's probably more, but I'll say three. 
We would be naive to think as Christians that the current worldview doesn't subtly or boldly influence the way we might think, and it may dull our Christian senses. I think secondly, it allows Christians to reconcile the biblical view to the worldview that's around us to better understand how other people think and how they are influenced and how they make decisions. And its, it's real core is the ability so that when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about God's things, we understand their view and their perspective and where they're coming from and how to present. And then finally, I think it prepares us for struggles. So we're going to face differences, and as Christians, when the world view directly clashes with God's view, I anticipate conflict in some way. And I, I use conflict as a not a as just a a, a difference or a, a, a concern, an opposite view. So God tells us, "Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from the human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ." And that's in Colossians two and eight. He goes on to say, "What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil." That dark is light, and light is dark. That bitter is sweet, and sweet is bitter. Jesus is all for forgiveness, and the world isn't. We shouldn't be surprised. With that background, let's start looking at the parable in more detail. Now, the core of this parable, it relates to a servant, and he's involved in two events. One, where he is the offender, and the other, where he is the offended. So you can picture that. I think we've all been in those circumstances. This isn't something that we shouldn't be relatable to us. We've all been offended, and we have all offended. Jesus wants to contrast the response of this servant in the different roles. So as the offended, the servant is, is acts, and as an offender, he acts. So we're going to jump ahead. I'm going to change the order of the parable a little bit in order to kind of fit into some of these things. So we're going to start at... Again, Matthew 18, and we're going to start at 28. So we're going to go kind of halfway into the parable. And it starts, When the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I will repay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. The offense is basic, and it should be relatable to all of us, as I've said. We have likely all been upset by someone who owes us something and refused to give it to us. Whether we lent a book, a bike, a car, uh, money, a toy, a tool, you can kind of go through the list. We've all had it. And I think we can all appreciate the desire to get back what we feel is rightfully ours. While we may disagree on how the servant managed the whole collection process, uh, grabbing the guy by the throat and being quite aggressive, when we sit back, he was within his rights to ask for his money. In effect, the lender kind of became a victim. He generously lent his fellow servant the money, and they likely agreed that he was going to get repaid. And there appears in the preparable anyways, there's no dispute on the amount. So, but basically, the servant was not prepared to pay him back. It could be said that the borrower's failure to pay him hurt the lender. 
or hurt the, he is right to bring the charges against him and seek justice. I mean, that would be, you know, a legal case. I'm not a lawyer, but you could kind of see the facts. It could be said, so if we apply today, this kind of fact situation in today's worldview, and we think about what it said, the definition about pitting evil against good, it's not about the amount and identifying the focus on honor and virtue for the victim, well, this outcome is consistent with that view. But the other thing I was, it's interesting, it's very difficult to imagine the reconciliation of this relationship between the two servants though, isn't it? In his approach and his failure to deal with the matter effectively, I can't imagine them reconciling. So what have we kind of covered this far? What are my points to this point? Well, I guess there are two points right now. Jesus is all for forgiveness and he wants us to be generous with it. And in the world we live in today, forgiveness is largely ignored. So what does forgiveness look like? In contrast, Jesus gives us, gives us a bit of insight when we go back to the beginning of the passage to an earlier time when we see this same servant who no longer is the, um, uh, it, it becomes now the offender, not the offended. So now he's the offender. The parable starts, and we're going to go back to the top of the parable in verse 23. And it says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. So at this point, Jesus introduces a king and who the servant owes a huge amount of money. It was so much money that it was very unlikely that the servant was ever able to repay it. And in fact, I, I, I suggest to you that there was no possibility uh, for this servant to, to repay it. So the king, what did he do? He sought justice. His first, his first approach was justice. We read in verse 25, he couldn't pay, so the master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and children and everything he owned to pay the debt. In that day, that was, I guess, justice. The king had every right to seek it and take the action and try to collect. You know, when you think of the alternative, the king would have suffered extreme financial loss, and he was actually hurt by the servant's inability to repay him. The king, you know, if we applied the worldview, the king was the victim. He was hurt by the actions of the other person. So what do we see next? Well, unlike the other situation, we, well, or similar to the other situation, we see the servant falling on his knees and he begs the king for to be patient and to give him, and give him time to be able to repay everything. Well, the king likely knew that there was absolutely no possibility that this debt would ever be repaid. It was impossible. The king, however, we read, out of pity, choose, chooses not to punish him. So not only is he not punished, but he's released. He's released, his debt is forgiven, 
and he is truly free. So he's free from prison in a practical sense, but free also from any future obligation. I suggest to you in this scenario that the king felt that the servant was sincere in his plea and that his heart was genuine, right? You can expect that. And that he responded rightly and justly with pity to the man's helpless state. He forgives. So now we can stand back and say, well, what's this parable mean to me? Well, we can reasonably see that the king in this parable is the picture of God the king and the picture of the servant is of you and me so you might say well i'm not indebted i don't have a debt well i'll tell you i have a debt i have a debt my indebtedness to god isn't money i am indebted to god because i chose to spend what he gave me whether you talk about my body my health my time or my skills I chose it to spend selfishly and on things specifically either he told me not to i squandered his love i squandered his mercy and many times quite honestly i, I disobeyed him when he asked me to go right many times i went left the bible calls all this accumulation of all these things that i've selfishly done that has hurt myself that has hurt people, and that has hurt God, sin. It's sin. And not only that, I can claim that for myself, but then the Bible tells us, for everyone has sinned, that we all fall short of God's glorious standard, and that's in Romans 3.23. We all have sinned, and we all fall short. I was thinking of this concept in the parable of falling short. I don't know if you've ever fallen short in other aspects of your life. I remember as a little boy, I went to uh, Kmart. This might date me because there's no more Kmarts around here. But, and I really wanted a swimming mask, you know, one of those scuba masks. And I, I figured it was about $9.98 or something like that at the time. And I had a $10 bill in my wallet. And I was so eager to go. I rode my bike about a mile and a half, got this thing, went to the cash. And guess what? There's tax that's on top of the $10. I fell short. And you know what? The story ends good. A, a, a woman behind me opened her wallet and paid the 73 cents or whatever the tax was, and I got my mask. But what does it feel like to fall short? Well, I can tell you, I felt helpless. I had no way to come up with this money. I, was, I felt hopeless that what I was trying to achieve, I couldn't achieve. And then I also realized that I was at the mercy of someone else. I, I, I had no way to resolve the situation myself. So what do we say? Further, the Bible tells us, you know, we said that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in the next verse, it says, we are all inf infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. What does that mean? Well, we may attempt to repay. We may say, well, David, I'm not that short. I, I can make up the difference. You know, God may have an account and may, maybe there are things I've done that, that otherwise maybe separate me from him, but I think I can make it up. Well, 
that verse would tell us that even though we try, even though we attempt to reconcile that difference with God, to repay him, to provide him with that debt of sin we owe, our righteousnesses don't cut it. They're nowhere close to his holiness and his way. So the servant found himself in front of the king, and he was pleading. He was short. He was pleading with the king. Isn't that, a, you can just feel that situation, the stress and the uncertainty associated with pleading for your life. Well, I have good news today. I have good news today. And the good news is this. In the context of the kingdom of heaven, you can be sure of your forgiveness. The debt of sin can be forgiven to you today. And you know what else? You can live free and forgiven today. But, just, but God is a just God, and he requires a penalty to be paid. Because if nobody paid the penalty, you'd say, well, how can God be just if he just let people go? In the parable of the king, when we look at the king's situation, we see that the king had to bear the loss of the millions of dollars. Somebody had to bear the loss. Well, the king did. The servant wasn't able to pay, and in order for the servant to be granted forgiveness, the king chose to take the loss. The king willingly took the financial loss for the servant's ability to, for the servant's inability to repay for, for his debt. Now, what about the kingdom of heaven? In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus took the burden of our debt. Jesus took the burden of our debt. God, through his son, the Lord Jesus, paid the debt of sin owed by us. In 1 Peter, it tells us he personally, and that's the Lord Jesus, carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. And it's by his wounds that we're healed. It's by his wounds we are healed. Jesus, God's son, died. He gave up his life, and he suffered the punishment as God's payment as of God as payment for my debt of sin. Jesus paid for the debt of sin I owed. The good news, Jesus paid for the debt of sin you owed. For forgiveness can be yours today. You can be assured of forgiveness right now. Now, I want to spend a few times on these verses because it's one thing for me to tell you. It's another thing for the Word of God to tell you what your position and what your state of forgiveness is with him and how to achieve it. John 3.16 might be known to many of us or all of us. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only, one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God loved the world. Everyone who believes in him will not perish. And in John 1 and 19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Romans 10 and 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Colossians 1, 13, 14, he has delivered us from the power of one of the things I want to jump back to is, you know, I, I, in my notes, and I'm, 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 I'm deviating a little bit from my notes, so that's always dangerous, but 
Let me say this, you know, in the parable, we don't hear about the king's motive for forgiveness. We hear him say it's pity. He had pity on him. You know, and the, 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 there's imperfections in parables sometime, and I can say that the story only gets better as we look at the kingdom of heaven. Why did Jesus die for us? Why did God allow Jesus to take the punishment of our sins? Why did God himself take the punishment of our sins through Jesus? Well, he did it because he loved us. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's the difference. Oh, God recognizes our helpless state. He recognizes that there's no way that we can reconcile the debt we owe him. But at the same time, he's provided a way. And he's provided it because he loves us and he cares for us and he wants to reconcile. He's a God of relationship. He's a God of relationship. So worldly justice attempts to have the offender bear the cost of the wrong. In God's kingdom, I can happily say, Jesus paid the debt I owed. And like the servant, I'm forgiven, my debt is canceled, and I'm set free through confession and, and trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So what have we covered so far? Jesus is all for forgiveness and wants us to be generous with it. Two, in the world we live in, forgiveness is largely ignored. And three, Jesus has paid the debt of sin for us, and he's willing to forgive us the debt. He's willing to forgive us, and he's willing to forgive us today through confession of our sin and through faith in Jesus. So the last point I want to raise, well, the last section anyways, is beware of unforgiveness. So what do I mean by that? Well, we can see that the servant started out in a terrible position as the offender. He was before a king. He owed a lot of money. He had no way to pay it, and he would never be able to repay it. And so he pleads with the king, and he, achieves, he obtains forgiveness from the king. And then in contrast, we see him now as the offended, someone who's hurt. And what's his response? Is, is it the same as what the king presented him? No, absolutely not. He is hard. He is unforgiving. He is, he, he's brutal. And he chooses not to take pity, not to forgive, and extract justice. So what's relevant now is we go on and we talk about the balance of it, so of, of the parable. And we'll finish up on verse 30. We'll go, start at verse 31 to read the balance. When some of the other servants saw this, so there were spectators to all of this, they were very upset, and they went to the king, and they told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man who had forgiven, who he had forgiven, and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured, until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. So the parable enters its final stage. Some fellow servants, knowing how much the servant had been forgiven, see this heartless treatment of this other servant. They report this behavior to the king, and the king is extremely angry. He reminds the servant that he forgave him, that he pleaded with him, with the king, that the servant had pleaded with the king, that he had forgiven him, and that he had canceled his debt. Well, needless to say, the king swiftly pursued justice by casting this wicked person, servant into prison. 
So as Christians, when we see the entire picture, we wonder, how could someone, and maybe it's not, you don't have to be a Christian to see this, how could someone who was forgiven so much be so unforgiving? Well, someone might give me some reasons of why I should forgive. You know, why should we forgive? What's the, what's the benefit of it? What, what does it mean? So I thought I'd throw a few things, uh, go through four items that I feel are biblical with respect to forgiveness, or rather for unforgiveness. If we don't forgive, if we don't forgive, I believe we would, we would not be consistent with God's character. He is a forgiving God. And I put some verses down there for the sake of time. I won't run through all the verses. I think two, if we don't forgive, we would be disobedient to God. If we don't forgive, we would be disobedient to, for God. And Ephesians 4, and I'll read this one, be kind and compassionate to one another, one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Sound familiar? Sounds like that parable we just went through. Number three, if we don't forgive, it can ruin earthly relationships. God made us relational. He made us relational to him and he made us relational to each other. And we all know the experience of offending in a relationship and reconciling that relationship. I trust it's, it's what we experience. In Proverbs 17 and nine, it says, love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. Lack of forgiveness. And then in Hebrews 12, it says, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Again, it affects relationships. And then finally, if we don't forgive, it impacts our relationship with God. It impacts our relationship with God. And this isn't a unique theme. We can do a lot of things in our lives that impact our relationship with, with God, and forgiveness is one of them. E oops, even in the Lord's Supper, uh, Lord's Prayer, for example, where Jesus is instructing his disciples how to pray, he specifically says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive others or those that sin against us. That's the Lord Jesus telling us how to pray. In Matthew eleven twenty five. but when you, when you are praying, first, first thing, forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Matthew 5.23, if you are pr presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled with that person, then come back and offer the sacrifice to God. My point here is that Jesus himself is saying unforgiveness, our failure to forgive or reconcile relationship for forgive others, impacts our relationship with him, impacts our ability to pray, for example, in some instances, and impacts our service and praise as it results to sacrifices, which aren't applicable, but he's referencing the principle. So these aren't minor points. These are significant points. Are we good, Glenn? Oops, went back. So in summary, what did we learn? Well, I guess before I get there, one thing I do wanna say 
And as it relates to be wearing, uh, to be, be to beware of unforgiveness, is this. A failure to be able to forgive, and I refer this to me, I'm speaking to me as much as to anybody. If I see a failure to forgive, forgive in my life, maybe I'm holding a grudge, maybe I'm, it's more serious than that. We should all take it as a warning that maybe not everything is right between us and God. Um, and I say that because of what we've just gone through and what we read. And to think that we can have sin in our life and continue on a path, we all sin, we all, have, we all struggle with different things. But it's just to be aware that forgiveness is a, is a principle in God's, in God's heavenly kingdom, that with unforgiveness or our, our refusal to forgive, it challenges us in that regard. Now, fine, oops. Now, finally, just in summary, as I close, what I went through, what we kind of covered today is Jesus is all for forgiveness, and he wants us to be generous with forgiveness. Forgiveness is largely ignored in the world we live in. Each of us has incurred a debt of sin and we can, that we can never repay God. Jesus has paid the debt of sin for us, and he is willing and eager to forgive the debt today through our confession and our faith in him. And then finally, unforgiveness is a warning sign of our spiritual health, as it is in direct conflict with what God has instructed us to do. So maybe there's someone here today that has yet to experience God's forgiveness. Maybe you recognize that you're carrying this debt, that you have a debt that you'll never repay God. Well, God is offering to forgive you today through confession and through faith in Jesus. Don't wait. You can be sure... You can be sure and confident today. If that's your case today and you have any questions, I'm sure there's someone here in this room that would be happy to talk to you. And me personally, I would be I would pleased to stand back and, and have a discussion with you. There might also be some here today that are consumed by bitterness, maybe not even consumed. Maybe they're holding a grudge. Maybe there's, there's other differences in opinion. God's desire is that forgiveness overcome and that we pursue restoration and relationships where possible. And then on one last note, forgiveness is possible. I'm able to forgive and you're able to forgive because Jesus forgave us. It is through his strength and love that we can put on humility and ask for forgiveness or grant forgiveness to someone else. With that, I'll close in prayer. Our blessed loving God and Father, I thank you so much for an opportunity we had to look into your word and to consider, Father, what, you look, what your view is on forgiveness and how important it is to your kingdom. Father, I thank you that your kingdom is built on the foundation of forgiveness. I thank you that we have hope of forgiveness, more than hope of forgiveness. We have forgiveness through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Father, I thank you for making that way and path for us. I just pray, Father, that this word, that your word would just resonate in our hearts and minds. And Father, if there's anything that was said here today that is not of you, Father, that would just fall to the ground. Father, I thank you again for your goodness and your grace. I thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name I pray. Amen.